All right. Well, uh, we're about to go into communion. My prayer and my hope is that this teaching time will prepare you in experiencing something here. So um, I, I just want you to do what you need to do to wake up, to kind of slap yourself around, to get yourself engaged here. And uh, I don't know what that is for you, but I'm, I'm praying that you'll do whatever that takes because I'm going to give you something and I want you to personalize it and then I want you to bring it to this kneeler, okay? So we're asking you to engage this morning. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We've been working through this whole chapter in our series in 1 Corinthians. And this is our uh, Puff or Build series where Paul says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians that knowledge puffs up like, an, like a balloon. It, it blows something up. Bless you. Bless you, Julie. All right. Blessing to you. All right. Not to the rest of you, to her. And so knowledge puffs up like a balloon, but love builds up uh, with real substance. And Paul is saying in this series that when we all we have is knowledge, but we're not attaching love to it, then it does more to hurt us than it does to help us. And so he said, for example, when it comes to loving your weaker brother, we talked about two weeks ago, when you take what you know to be true and the theology that comes with truth, and then we put love with that for our, for our weaker brother, it builds up. Then last week, we talked about Paul saying, how do we engage with people outside these walls that would not call themselves Christ followers, don't want to go to church, would rather sleep in on Sunday morning because none of us would rather do that. Okay. And how do we engage with them? And Paul said, we become all things to all people. We kind of unwrapped that, that when I put knowledge with love, it frees me to love the weaker brother, but it also frees me to love my neighbor and to love the world and see my role out there as a Christ follower. But today, we're coming to the end of the series because today, not only can I love the weaker brother, not only can I love the world, but I can also love myself. When I put knowledge with love, it is a powerful thing when I can love me. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 24, Paul gives this familiar passage to those of you that have been around the church for a while. You've probably heard this, and you've probably heard a lot of sermons on it. It says, do you not know that in a race... All the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way to get the prize. So Paul is saying, you know that when, it, when people race, only one crosses the finish line with a ticker tape and gets the crown. And he goes, that's the person that you know gave it all. Run like that. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. So what Paul is saying to these people, because in Corinth, in that world at the time, the second largest sporting event happened in Corinth. It was like the Olympics. Every two years, all these athletes descended upon this port city, and they would have just weeks and weeks of these games. And so the Corinthians would, would be familiar with this analogy because every two years, their town would be invaded by these super athletes from all over the known world. And they would be covering the hillside. You could see them training from wrestling to boxing to running. And it's pretty common that you would probably see a race down your street. And these runners coming down, and he says, you know, when you, you see those guys that are running by that have sweat, they, you know, the blood, the tears, they're coming in with such passion. Paul is saying, take that image now and apply it to your Christian life. And he says, uh, they run to get a crown that will not last, meaning when they win, they got a little, you know, I don't know, like a little thing. And then... He says, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. 
Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body. I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified for the prize. Now, growing, I grew up in a church. Uh, it's an interesting thing because I've heard sermons on this passage before, and the sermons really kind of go along this line is, Paul is saying, get your butt in gear. Get busy. I don't know what you're doing, but it ain't enough. And you better start doing more, and you start doing more faster. You need to commit yourself fully to what you're doing and then double your efforts. And usually this is the kind of passage that a pastor would come and give you illustrations to get you motivated to do more specifically for the church. In other words, the pastor has an agenda, and there are certain things that I want to do in this organization, and I need you to do them for me. And so I'm going to motivate you to do the stuff that I think God wants you to do, in fact, when it's... Anyway. And so he would give illustrations like the little engine who could, you know. I think I can. I think I can. Or one of my favorites is when they start pulling out African illustrations you know, like they start talking about super marathon runners who, you know, did you hear about the guy, you know, who just won the Boston Marathon this year? He set the new world record. Did y'all hear that? That he ran a full marathon. He averaged four minutes and 43 seconds a mile for 26. It doesn't matter. Like, I, I couldn't run a half mile that fast, all right? I'm like, what kind of freak in nature is this guy? But then, you know, the pastor would go up and tell you, you know, about how he was poor and how he was malnourished all his life. But every morning he would get up, you know, and eat his one grain of rice for breakfast and then go run 30 miles because he had dreams of vision and he was fully committed. And then on a run when he was 15, he was attacked by an alligator and lost his left arm, but it didn't, left arm, and then it didn't stop stop him. And then the next day he was attacked again and he lost both his legs and he still won the marathon. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Don't you feel lousy? That he could accomplish all that and we can't get off the couch? Marathons for us are three movies in a row and two bags of Cheetos. <laughs> I mean, seriously, do you ever feel that way? You look at the mirror and you go, what are you doing with your life? Like, you know, there, there are people that have made millions of dollars by the time they were your age. Yeah, okay. That's the last thing we need. And I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. I don't think Paul is trying to give you a pep talk on how to run faster or do more. I think he's saying something much more significant, and it's going to take us deeper into our hearts. Because I think what Paul is talking about is something that's more than just how fast do you run. Because he says up here, we run to get a crown. Meaning, we are motivated by something. And Paul is tapping into the deepest desires of our heart. And here's my question for you. What are you running for? Because I'm telling you something, all of you are fully committed to something. You're all fully committed. You don't need more motivation. Matter of fact, you have all the motivation you need. And not only do you have enough motivation, you are running with all your passion. Even if you're spending all your days on a couch eating Cheetos, you know what your race is? I give up. And you have fully committed yourself to that. Right? So let's unpack this and see what the Lord has for us today. We start by asking the simple question, what did Paul mean at the very end? 
I myself will not be disqualified for the prize? What does that mean? Is Paul saying that if I don't win the race, I'm not getting to heaven? I mean, he says that we're running for a crown that will last forever. Is Paul actually saying that if he doesn't watch things and if he stops being motivated and stops running, that even the apostle Paul is not going to get into heaven when he dies? I mean, that's kind of staggering to think about. If the apostle Paul is questioning whether or not he's going to get into heaven, what chances do the rest of us have? That's kind of like Lance Armstrong, you know, looking at you and going, you know, I tried to scale that mountain on a bike and I can't do it, and then hands the bike to us and says, but I'm sure you can. Are you kidding me? Have you ever ridden with someone who is a great biker? I had a chance to do that a few years ago. Some nationally ranked amateurs asked me to go bike riding with them. And uh, trust me, if that ever happens to you, just follow them in a car. Just say, no, thank you. I would love to, but I want to keep some self-esteem in my life. I mean, literally, we were going up hills that I thought, all I'm praying is, God, please don't let me throw up on these guys, all right? Because we're pedaling up the hill, and they're actually leaning back, you know, and they're just pedaling, and they're telling jokes and stuff, and I'm sweating, and I'm like, I'm not going to make it up this hill. If Paul can't do it, what chances do we have? Well, hear this, okay? And I, I want you to hear this clear Maybe this is a new idea to you, but that's not what Paul is talking about. Matter of fact, I want to encourage you, you, if you are saved this morning, meaning that Christ has come into your life and has set you free from your sins and he has called you brother and father has called you son, you can never lose that. In Romans chapter 3, it says, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the free gift of eternal life is in his son, Jesus Christ. Free gift. If I give you something and I say that's a gift and then I come back the next day and go, hey, I need that back. That's not a gift. That was something I lent to you. And it certainly wasn't free if I come to you and say, now you can keep this gift under the condition that you run the race really well for the rest of your life. So if I deem that you're not running hard enough, I'm going to sneak into your house and I'm going to take that gift away. That's not what Romans 3 is talking about. Romans 3 is saying once we have the gift, it's ours. And guess what the cost of it is? To us, nothing. In Philippians chapter 1-6, it says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. In fact, the scriptures tell me that my own salvation was architect in heaven. It's not something I created. I didn't do God a favor by saying, Hey God, today I choose you. Scripture tells me that long before I was even born, God chose me, that he put his affection on me, and then he came after me. In fact, Scripture says I was ambushed by God. I wasn't even looking for God, and boom, God came looking for me. And my own personal experience is true. And if the one who started this whole mess called Christianity, because trust me, if you're new to this, Christianity is a mess, okay, He says that if he started it, guess what he's going to do? He's going to carry it on. In fact, he's got me tucked under his arm, and he's going, shut up. We're going to the finish line, all right? But Jesus, no, be quiet, all right? Let's go. Next verse, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Why do we praise him? Because in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope. Underline, he gave us. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. If this is a new concept for you, you ought to take this verse this afternoon and you ought to go and underline all these active words that you would love for the person that you love most in the world to say to you. I keep you. And what I have for you will never perish, spoil, or fade. I shield you. Wow. That's why in in the book of 1 John, John, the apostle, goes on to write, he says, I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. That God wants us to know that we have it. That we can't lose it. See, he says certain promises throughout the whole scriptures that says, I will never let you go. And Jesus said, I don't lose any of the ones that the Father gives me. And then he goes on to say, nothing can separate us from the love of God when we are in Christ Jesus. In reality, you know, if you are living a Christianity where you believe God is waiting for you to hang on to him, and that, you know, if you have another quiet time today, that tightens your grip. Or if you go to church this morning, that kind of tightens your grip because you kind of feel like, you know, too much tequila last night and you're loosening your grip on God. I want to encourage you that if you're in Christ, guess what? You're not hanging on to God. God's hanging on to you. It's kind of like when my kids were little and they didn't know how to swim, you know, and I wanted them to jump off the diving board for I don't know what reason, all right? I, I'm treading water and I'm going to ask a five-year-old, now jump on my head. No, really, it'll be awesome, you know? And they jump in the water, and they cling around my neck, and they really believe as a child that if I let go of daddy's neck, he's going to let me sink to the bottom of the pool, and he's going to let me drown. I'm certain dad will do that. And so they tighten their grip, and they got their little floaties on, you know, and the little dragon around their, you know, and they're hanging on to you. And you know what's crazy is they reach that age to where they realize maybe my dad's not a killer of children, you know? And they start living in the freedom of dad has me. And that's when you get caught in the face with an elbow, you know, and stuff. Because they're just going, yay, you know, the freedom. And that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about you don't have God as if you, can you go find God and get a grip on him? Like how big is his waist? You really got him. What Paul is saying is God has you. Do you realize that? So what does disqualified mean? Jesus said he's already run the good race. And we already heard in Scripture, and we talk about it often, Christ is in me, and his victory is my victory, right? Haven't you ever heard that song, Victory in Jesus? Who can sing that? Come on, did nobody grow up with the old, old hymns? Gee, you guys are so uptight this morning. Victory in Jesus. What's the rest of the words? Uh, victory. All great 80 hairband songs. You know, you all know the, you know, the, the tag. Live it on the, you know, and then. <laughs> Do we have victory in Jesus? Yes. It's his victory that we have victory in, not our victory. So that seems so contrary to what Paul's saying, doesn't it? 
So what's Paul about? You know, run and finish line and crowns. That sounds like my victory. Well, okay, this is where it starts getting a little personal. Let's go to Jonah chapter 2. Now, you may need to go to your index to, uh, to find that, or you can just look up on the screen. Because I think Jonah is giving us a little clue as to what Paul is talking about when he says disqualified here. Now, Jonah, if you're not familiar with the story, he was a prophet of God who was accustomed to speaking to God. I don't know if you find that odd. Uh, imagine a man who is familiar with the voice of God in his own life. God had come to him, and God said, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, yeah, no. And uh, God said, no, I want you to go preach the gospel to Nineveh. And Jonah said, once again, God, no. And he's, God said, come on, Jonah, get on the boat. And, God, and Jonah looks at God and says, guess what, God? The boat I'm getting on is going in the other direction. And this is what's crazy. I'm going to run away from you. Imagine that. Because I know you're right here because you're God, but you won't be in the boat on the other side of the ocean. Jonah was a little slow. But let's hear what happened. Because he was on the boat and the storms blew up by the hand of God. And Jonah finally told all these pagan worshiping sailors the reason this storm has come up and the reason we're all going to die is because of me because I'm running away from God. And so he looked at the sailors and he said, guys, they said, what do we do, Jonah? And he goes, hey, you know what? Just throw me overboard. Jonah was at the point to where he's not just running away from God. He was like, you know what? I'm through with this mess. I'm through with this whole listening to God. Y'all just throw me into the ocean. And then I'm sure he'll save you guys because it's me he's after. So they go, Jonah, we couldn't. He goes, really, do it. They said, Jonah, we couldn't. And they said, okay, we can do it. And they threw him in the ocean. Jonah is in the belly of a fish. You know the story. The fish comes, swallows him. And what we're getting to eavesdrop in on is Jonah's prayer to God as he's in the belly of this fish. So let's see what he has to say. In verse 2, he says, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and your breakers, they swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounds me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, O Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to the holy temple. You see this picture that Jonah says, man, I have reached the end. And they threw me in the water and, I, and I'm sinking, and, and the light of the surface is fading. And I'm going deeper and deeper, convinced that the path I'm on right now is the path I wanted to be on. And as the seaweed began to wrap around his neck, as he began to see the foundations of the, the mountains, the bottom of the ocean, and he realized this really is the end. I can't see the surface anymore. I don't know if you've ever been there. He cried out to the Lord. In that moment, of absolute despair when he realized this is the end. It's almost like the morning after, isn't it? 
that moment in our life where we have such clarity of what was I thinking? What brought me to this place? What craziness would have me to believe that this is the best solution for my life, that I'm sinking now and I'm at the very bottom of the ocean and I'm wrapped around? In that moment, Jonah cried out to the Lord. And listen to what he said in verse 8. And I want to ask you, is this a strange thing to say? Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Verse 9, but I will shout of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I vowed. I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. He's like, in my clarity, Lord, now where do you want me to go? What do you want me to say? So what does this teach us about Paul saying run the race? I think the key here in this moment of clarity is in verse 8. Your version may say that we forfeit the grace of God because of the foolish idols that we hang on to. I want to show you, if, if you have a King James, look that up. If you don't, look up here. This is what it says in King James. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. What does that mean? They that observe, listen, grab, hold on to, lying vanities. So I went to the original language, and I was like, well, what does this mean? Shav was actually the word in Hebrew that's used for lying. And it really means empty or falsehood, that this is empty, and it's lying. And then vanity, haval, which means vapor, breath, like your breath, or a mist of smoke, or a ghost. What, what Jonah is saying is, when we start to grab a hold of, when we start to guard, which means cling, when we start to do those things to the lying ghost in my life, I forfeit the grace of God. I disqualify myself from running the race that I was meant to run. What's funny about that is we all have ghosts. Matter of fact, we all have lying ghosts. We don't know specifically what the lying ghosts were that drove Jonah to run away from God. But I, I want to take us down a path real quick this morning before we come here. And I, I want to ask you, would you be willing this morning to expose your lying ghost? And I want to warn you, though, because lying ghosts have a capability of bringing deception. And you know what really stinks about being deceived? Is that you don't know that you're deceived. That's the nature of deception, isn't it? And lying ghosts love to deceive because they love to convince you that this is true. But I want to help you expose them this morning and ask yourself the simple question, how have those lying ghosts, like Jonah, disqualified me from running the very race that has already been won for me? Well, three things that I think our lying ghosts look like. And I just want to talk about three of them real quick, and there are more, I'm sure. But the first is, you are your past. I love this ghost that comes in, that tells you that you really are your past. That what you've experienced in your past and what has happened to you in your past really define who you are. Let me give you a little example. This is crazy. I was five years old. 
five. Do you ever, do you remember anything about being five? But my parents put me into first grade and I was younger than the other kids and had a hard time grasping what you had to grasp when you're a first grader, you know, like one, two, three, and ABC and that kind of stuff. So the teacher made a deal with my mom that after school on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I would stay after school for an extra 45 minutes of tutoring so that I could catch up with the rest of the kids. The only problem was when I was five, I had no concept of Monday, Tuesday, or Friday. What is that? So I regularly got on the bus at the end of Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and went home to walk into the door and say, I'm home. And my mom, uh, realizing she's got to take me back up to school. And her just flipping out. I can't believe you did this again. Again. How many times do I have to tell you you're supposed to stay at school Monday, Wednesday, and Friday? Now get in the car. And she would lecture me all the way back to the school. Isn't that crazy that I can remember that? Here's what the line goes to. At an early age, at five years old, I learned the lesson. And here's the lesson. Don't disappoint people. Don't let them down. How could a message like that stay with me for a long time? Is that possible? That what I learned at a, as a five-year-old little boy would still haunt me? Let me tell you how it manifests itself. And maybe this is how it manifests in you. That lying ghost that talks about the past that tells us that we have disappointed and that we're not going to disappoint anymore can work itself in our lives to where we can really live with the fear of what people think about us. Have I disappointed you? Do you like me? That lying ghost really begins to whisper in our ear and says, you know what your job is? Is keep everybody happy. Never create problems. Don't create any kind of conflict. Make sure that everybody's getting what they need. That lying ghost can come in and really convince us that I don't have to trust anybody. I can't trust anybody. It's really funny because all through high school, I was convinced as from a five-year-old that whatever other students are doing, I can't do. That whatever they can accomplish academically, I couldn't accomplish that academically. Because I was told when I was five, I was behind everybody else. And isn't it funny that I was listening to a friend of mine sing a Patty Griffin song the other day. And the song starts with, I wish I was stronger. I wish I was smarter. And the song is about all these wishes that I, I wish that something would change inside of me because if that changed inside of me, then life would be better. The lying ghosts that really try to convince us of that. So it's not just the lying ghosts that you are your past, but it's also the lying ghosts you are your failures or you are your successes. We are what we do. This is a beautiful one, especially for those of you that are really successful. This one works for you great, man. If you're really able to achieve and you're really able to produce. But underneath that drive, 
that I've got to produce is the thought that maybe I'm not enough. The lying whisper is, you are not enough. And some of us compensate for that by exaggerating the truth. When I start believing the, the ghost, the lying ghost, that I'm not enough, it's easy for me to start telling you about me, but I always ramp it up, a little turbocharge, a little bit of exaggeration, so it sounds a little better than it really is. So if I made $20,000 last year, but I'm telling you I made twenty-five. Or if I accomplish this, you know, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to juice it up just a little bit more. If I ran the marathon in four hours, when I tell you it's 345. Every attempt to try to cover up what I really believe to be true, that I'm not enough. And I've got to help you think I am enough. Or how about this one? The whisper, when I live in my failures or my successes, your heart has no value. In other words, the whisper is you better keep your feelings down Don't ever acknowledge your fears. Don't ever acknowledge you're angry. Don't ever acknowledge your sadness. Don't ever acknowledge anything that's going on down there because feelings just get in the way. And what do they get in the way of? Getting it done. And what is life about? Getting it done. Because I am what I do. And I need to become effective. And I need to become efficient. Because the more I do, the more I am. The more I can run the race away from failure and toward success. This ghost of failure and successes has another whispering voice. It's the voice of, you know what? I'm just so bad I can't be forgiven. You don't know what I've done. I just can't be forgiven. I can't walk into the grace of God. Because the grace of God is for people that have done less than me. Or the other side of that is, I'm too good. Some of you really struggle acknowledging that you have any sin in your life. Matter of fact, you're so convinced that that whispering ghost of you are what you do, and by God, look what I've done, that you wouldn't say that you have any sin at all. Matter of fact, that's why you love Jesus so much, because y'all have so much in common. Pure perfection. I finally met someone I can relate to. He had no sin, you know? Or how about this lying ghost, the third lying ghost? This is a powerful one. You really are all alone. That ghost loves to sneak in and start whispering things like this. Everything depends on you because you can't count on anybody. You are all alone. And so we become people that control everything because all I'm doing is building my own fortress and furnishing it with my own power because it's all about me. It's all about me getting what I need, getting what I want, because nobody else is going to give it to me. I can't trust anybody. I can't put my heart into anybody. And what I see is what I get. You know, it's funny about this, you're all alone. It leads to this mentality. What things are like now is what they will always be. Things are never going to change. For example, And this is crazy because think about your life right now, the things that you're discontent with. If you're living in this lying ghost and that lying ghost is whispering in your ear and saying, hey, it's never going to change. You're single. You want to be married, but you're never going to get married. Nobody's ever going to love you. You're all alone. You better just build your fortress and figure out how to live on your own because this is the way it's going to be for the rest of your life. And we easily find ourselves attaching emotions to a future that we're imagining 
that is a result of nothing changing in the present. And we can depress ourselves thinking about 15 years from now. You know, what is it going to be like 20 years from now? Or what is it going to be like 30 years from now? We get depressed and beat ourselves up and crawl into a hole about a future that we don't even know if it's going to happen. And Satan loves this one. Because when we believe that nothing can change, I don't care that God built the universe. I don't care that he holds all the stars in place. I don't care that he knows all their names. I don't care that he's that powerful. He doesn't have the power to change my life. It's hopeless. This is beyond even the power of God. Can you imagine getting to that place? Yes, I can. Of course I can. And Satan loves to come in because he knows he can't take our hope away. All he can do is deceive us into thinking that he's taken it away. Mark Twain said, It isn't what you don't know that hurts you. It's what you know that isn't so. The lying ghost. So let me just say a couple things about these ghosts. I don't know what yours are. What are the messages that are beating you up? What are the things that are dragging you down to the bottom of the sea? What are the things that are wrapping seed we around your neck that you said, I believe you, I believe you, I believe you. It's miserable, I believe you. Because we cling to them, we guard them, we fight for them. And yet when we do that, we forfeit the grace of God that comes in and replaces them. What Paul is saying when he says, run the race, fight the fight, he's saying to us as believers, do you know who you are? Do you realize what you have? Patty Griffin getting two call-outs in this sermon. But it's great because in her song, Forgiveness, she says we're swimming with the snakes at the bottom of the well. At the bottom of the well. So silent and peaceful in the darkness where we fell. Thank you. But we are not snakes. And what's more, we never will be. And if we stay swimming here forever, we will never be free. Isn't it true? Hey, my lying ghost, guess what? That's not me. I'm not a snake in the bottom of this well, even though I may be down here with the snakes. But if I choose that I'm going to live in the bottom of this well, this is as good as it gets. I can never get rid of these ghosts. My past is my past. I can never live in a new future. You know, it seems so hopeless. There's no way I can breathe hope into that. That wouldn't be genuine or authentic, would it? It would seem so fake. If I keep saying I'm not getting out of the well, guess what? You're never going to live in the freedom of God's grace to run the race. See, you're more than your ghost. You're free in Christ. Will you believe that this morning? And if you will, this is what it's going to look like. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, you can write this down. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, at the beginning of the chapter, 3 through 5, this is what Paul says. For though we live in this world, in the well, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine powers to demolish strongholds. Now, this is Paul saying, hey, we're all in a fight. And we, we have a fight, and we've got to demolish some strongholds in our lives, guys. So how do we do that? We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So we are coming with 
everything we've got against everything that would stand in opposition to what the truth of God is. And what is that? We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. You hear this? God is saying, guys, we got to get inside our heads. And those ghosts, it's time not to just be content living at the bottom of the well with the snakes, but it's time to kick those ghosts out. That we've got to take those, co- those ghosts captive, chain them up, and then throw them out. For example, if I believe you are your past, how do I take that captive? Christ says the old is gone, the new has come. Christ says he perfectly loves me. Christ says that the future is in his hands. Christ says that I am in his hands. And Christ says that he is good. What's beautiful about that is it sets me free when it comes to others because I stop coming to you wanting all your approval. I don't come to others looking for love now. I come to others because I am love now. What about you're a failure? I love this about the gospel because how does the gospel take that thought captive? Well, you have failed. You failed in a lot of things. The gospel even says celebrate that because he's not failed. We glory in our weakness and make his power perfect. And he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So let me wrap this up because it says in Hebrews 12, verse 1, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us run. We were made to run. I have a friend who uh, adopts greyhounds, uh, rescue, you know, the, the dogs that when they're through racing, you can adopt them. And they train you when you adopt a greyhound that you have to keep them on the leash or if you let them off the leash, you have to keep them in an enclosed area because otherwise they would run off because it's their nature to run. They just want to go and just keep going and you won't be able to keep up with them and they'll be gone. It's their nature. And that's what Paul is saying. Do you not know that when Christ sets me free and I live in grace, my nature now is to run, is to love, is to fight the good fight to know who you are, and to live in the purpose of our salvation. And so in this passage in Hebrews, he says two things. First, a great cloud of witnesses. Who are you listening to? Who have you asked in your life to bring the gospel and start whispering in your ears? Who? Who is speaking to you? Are they bringing the words of God? Thursday night, I was at Christopher Williams' uh, CD release party, and halfway through the show, He stopped everybody and actually started talking about ghosts. And he says, you know, voices, I get these voices that tell me I'm not a great father. These voices that tell me I'm not a great husband. These voices that tell me I'm not a great artist or a musician. And he says, so I'm about to sing this next song, but I'm not singing it for me or for you. I'm singing this for me. And he starts singing this song about just walking through the gates of grace and forgiveness and remembering who he is. And then he did something beautiful at the Rutledge. He said, would y'all sing the chorus with me? And it was beautiful because he kept saying louder, louder. And it was almost like he was standing up there going, yell it to me. And every time I yelled it, it bounced back to me. Who are you asking in your life, yell it to me? 
My ghosts are loud. I do believe I am in my past. I do believe what I do. And I do believe that I'm alone. So yell it to me. Who are you listening to? And then finally, who are you looking to? He says, fix your eyes on Christ, the author of our salvation. The one that has given us life. And that's what this table is about. Not just yell it to me, but let me see you. And so Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he instituted this sacrament, this beautiful sacrament that replaces the Passover for us because our Passover lamb has come and he accomplished the work of the Passover. And so we don't celebrate this sacrament anymore in the hopes that our redemption will come. We celebrate this Passover or this sacrament because our redemption has come. The race has been won. He has given us everything, forgiveness, himself, holiness. So we come to this table as those that not just remember, like Jonah at the bottom of the ocean, sanity, oh yeah. But we also come to this table to proclaim. We yell at each other when we come to this table. Believe. So we come together. And that's why we do it this way at Midtown. Because we want you to get up. We want you to move your body. We want you to participate so that you can fully engage in tasting, smelling, chewing this sacrament that God has given us so that we can remember and so we can proclaim. So here's what I want to ask you. And what I want this table to be about for us today, what what are the lying ghosts in your life that have come in and that you've started to cling on to that are causing you to be disqualified from running this outrageously free race for the Lord. What are your lying ghosts? What are they that you're not, that you don't measure up, that you can't, that your future won't, something that robs you of hope? What are your lying ghosts? Are you self-aware to know that? And guess what? If you're sitting there this morning going, you know, I don't think I have any lying ghosts. Good Lord, I hope you have a friend that will look at you and say, let me tell you what they are. And if you're fortunate, maybe you have a wife that will do that. She's in the know, trust me. Will you bring that ghost here and say, I'm tired of living at the bottom of the well because that's not who I am and leave it here? Let me give you a last little encouragement. What is the sin that you struggle with? What is it? Is it fear? Drinking? I don't know. Lust? What is, your, what is your sin? Chase it home. It lives with one of your ghosts. If you don't know where your ghosts are, chase your sin home. If that doesn't work, let me ask you this. What are you afraid of? Where is your fear rest in your life? Chase that one home, and it'll tell you where your real hope is. Because behind all my fears are my deepest hopes. Is your hope in the Lord? Will you bring it to this table? Will you put down those things that have robbed you of his grace? Will you put down those things that have cheated you of running the good race? Will you put your sins down? And will you pick up his mercy? Will you pick up his joy? Will you pick up the celebration that he puts the crown already on our head because Jesus won the race? All right, let's pray. Lord, we come to you and ask that you would minister to us.
at this table. Jesus, you have come and you have taken the old and you have thrown it away and you have brought the new. That in forgiving me of my sins and rising again from the dead, Lord, you also call me to live a new life. You're not sitting in heaven wondering if I'm going to do it. You're here with us, Lord, abiding within us so that we can. So, Lord, I pray that you would bless my friends as we go on a soul journey of seeing our voices and seeing the lying ghost and putting them down and picking up your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.